Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for creating us, for caring for us, and for being concerned about all that goes on in our creation, everything around us as well as our own lives. We are conscious of suffering in the world. We are conscious of suffering in our own lives. We are conscious of the suffering in creation. Let that not deter us from recognizing your love, recognizing your care, your concern, and your presence in the midst of it. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. As you can tell from my prayer, we're going to talk about suffering today. But let's just kind of um, get, uh, you know, to where we began with the series and then where we're kind of heading. First, let me start by wishing everybody Happy Mother's Day, to whom it's appropriate, and uh, uh, mothers who kind of appreciate things in the midst of suffering as well as everything else. It's kind of an interesting metaphor, too, that even childbirth itself comes with suffering, you know, and it's kind of an indication of where we're kind of heading on the whole theme of creation. In any case, um, to just kind of do a quick recap, uh, what we had talked about in the, uh, in the first lecture was the um, Darwin's theory itself. So we're, we're going kind of piecemeal through the book by Elizabeth Johnson called Ask the Beasts, uh, Darwin and the God of Love. And we're trying to develop what I would describe as a creation spirituality, trying to figure out what theories of evolution, what our science tells us today, uh, what all of that would uh, would say in terms of the creed. And so uh, the first week we kind of talked about Darwin and we talked about his uh, theory of evolution and we highlighted a couple of things that would be important and then we're kind of relating those things to the creed as we go along. So the, the two things that are, that are important in terms of Darwin's theory is what he called descent with modification and what we kind of commonly got to call natural selection that there are spontaneous uh, mutations, there are gradual or uh, very um, slight modifications in nature as we go along, so things change uh, randomly, haphazardly, and then what happens is because of those particular changes, uh, certain elements in those changes enable species uh, to survive better in a, um, in a hostile environment. So the other aspect of uh, Darwin's theory is not only descent with modification or what we could call natural selection, although nobody's selecting it, it's just happening, right? But descent with modification. But the other aspect is what we call the struggle for survival. And uh, we call that survival of the fittest, but that has a lot of pejorative uh, overtones. And if we see it more as kind of the struggle for existence, uh, we recognize that we're in a world that... Um, you know, in which everything cannot continue to survive. If everything survived in the world, we'd be overcrowded, the planet would be overcrowded, the whole thing would be over in one generation. So there's always, uh, you know, a death that's involved, there's always extinction, there are all kinds of things that go on naturally, and so there is a, uh, a struggle for survival. So now, the descent with modification enables certain species to continue to survive because some some changes and traits begin to be useful and helpful in the struggle for survival and so the natural selection helps in what we call the survival of the fittest. 
So those two elements uh, within Darwin are, uh, are kind of the, the essence, if you want, I think, of his evolutionary theory. And then um, he says that um, uh, one last element in all of that is that the particular traits that develop with descent with modification that help you in your struggle for existence, though some of those traits are inheritable. Huh? So if they're not inheritable, of course, they're not going to be helpful, and they're not part of the evolutionary process, and you go extinct. But the, um, uh, the uh, ability to kind of transmit these, uh, these traits is also part of what happens. So that, in essence, is his, his theory. Not terribly complicated, but it has enormous effects for everything that's gone on. So uh, what we're trying to do is to take those particular points and then try to put them into uh, dialogue with our creed. Say, well, now, what does this all say about our religious experience? And, of course, I think we're, we're at a stage where we're not saying, well, it's all wrong because the Bible tells me that the world was created 6,000 years ago and, uh, you know, science is going to contradict the Bible, so we have to dismiss science. I think what we recognize is that we have to understand our Bible better and we have to understand our religious traditions better to make them compatible with, uh, with science. So we don't have a, uh, a view here, at least in what I'm doing, in kind of opposing science and religion. Uh, and in fact, we don't want to even just keep them on separate tracks. We're kind of moving in a direction where they enter into dialogue with each other, where they become complementary, but where in fact they are really dealing with different aspects of what's going on. So I, I used last week the uh, example that there are different ways of analyzing the same facts and reality, and religion does it from one point of view, and science does it from another. And the example that I like, uh, I stole it from my colleague, John Hart, but he, uh, he's got a nice example of what happens when you boil a kettle uh, for, for tea. You know, you put the kettle on the stove and you say, why is the water boiling? And I say, well, one way you can say the water is boiling is because the, uh, the heat makes all the molecules move around and, you know, they move faster and then the water boils. Another reason why the water is boiling is because you turn the gas on. And another reason why the water is boiling is because you want tea. <laughs> so in other words, all of those are valid answers, but they're really coming from different things. So, uh, you know, in, um, in, in philosophy, we call them as different kinds of causality. So there's formal cause, material cause, efficient cause, and final cause. Uh, so uh, formal and material cause are talking about the nature of things, and that would be science. Uh, so molecules boil because they heat up and then they bounce around. But then when you have, you know, I turn the stove on, is efficient cause. Huh? In other words, there's something else that kind of enters into it. And when we get to efficient cause, we're, re we're re really moving outside the realm of science and we're moving into more philosophical areas and, and, uh, and we're asking for meaning and things of that sort. And then especially when we get to I want... Uh, the water is boiling because I want tea, we're talking about final cause or we're talking about meaning. Well, when you get to efficient cause and you get to meaning, final cause, now you're into the realm of philosophy or into the realm of religion, you're into other areas. So we're all looking at the same facts, but we're really coming from different directions. But I think the approach that I'm taking here, that Johnson takes, and I think is the most helpful in terms of our own experience in the world, is that there is some kind of complementarity between science and religion, and that we're coming from different points of view, so we're not saying the same things, and we're not, you know, proving each other. We're really coming from different points of view, but that, in fact, there is a compatibility and there is a dialogue that takes place between them. So, we started moving to the creed, and 
as Johnson does it, and as I'm doing it, we started backwards. So the creed ends up with the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, and we started with the Holy Spirit. And last week, what I was especially uh, concerned about in, in dealing with the Spirit was addressing the Holy Spirit in the context of descent with modification. And, of course, the big issues that came up with descent with modification are all of the issues and so where's God in creation? And then especially how do we explain divine providence, you know, a God that, you know, works over the whole world and a God that, that takes care of the world. How does that all happen when, when descent with modification is random, it's chaotic, there's no rhyme or reason for why it happens, you know, then how do you talk about a God who's taking care of all of this stuff? So we developed the theology of the Holy Spirit to try to get a sense, especially that the uh, a theology of the Holy Spirit gives us that aspect of God and that experience of God that I described as immanent, huh? with an A, uh, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, meaning the withinness of things. Huh? So while God is transcendent and God is always more and God is always beyond us and we can't explain God and we never will, God is also the within of everything. So Tillich described that as God as the ground of being. Huh? So God is not a being. God is being itself. Huh? God is not a particular person. God underpins all personality. Huh? God is not just a particular being that loves. God is love itself. So Holy Spirit is trying to give us that sense that God is present. God is within God underpins everything and that God is in and around everything. A concept that I developed last week also was that we don't want to talk just about a God who's up there someplace, you know, but we don't also want to talk about a God who is identical with the creation. Since we say God is present, we don't want to be pantheists. So they developed a new concept huh, between transcendence and pantheism, and they call it panentheism. Huh? which means that God is in everything. Huh? But I think it's, uh, it, it's true to our own experience that, in fact, we find God by going as deep down into ourselves as we can. And when we go down as deep into ourselves as we can, and we begin to confront things like goodness, and we start searching, what's goodness? Or we start searching for truth, and we say, what's truth? Or we start searching for what's beautiful, you know, and what, you know, uh, affects us as beautiful. And uh, we, we keep probing those things. What we find out is all of those things have an inexhaustible aspect to it. So as I keep saying all the time, nobody ever says, I've now used up beauty. Let's go do something else. Huh? Or I have all truth. Let's go do something else. Huh? Or I have attained all goodness. Huh? There's always something more and something more. But it's found by going inside. The deeper down inside ourselves we go, the more we find out that there's something outside that's really underpinning all of it, sustaining it, keeping it in existence, and moving it along. So it's in that regard that the Holy Spirit especially conveys that kind of reality. So we can't even picture the Holy Spirit as a person, because if you picture the Holy Spirit as a person, it's always outside of you someplace, right? But if you picture it as water, you know, you know water pours, it's in everything, <laughs> Got a leaky roof, you always know that. Uh, you know, water is, is light. Huh? Holy Spirit is light or fire. The Holy Spirit is breath or air. Those are all the things that are trying to get us that sense of intimacy, huh? that sense of withinness, that sense of love, that sense of, of uh, you know, sustaining everything. And that, I think, is consistent 
with, uh, uh, with science if we understand it properly. So if we move to the Holy Spirit and we understand the Spirit in that regard, huh, that this is the way in which God is experienced as imminent huh, and within, a panentheism, then we say, now how does all of that work with creation, huh, with descent, with modification? And what we say is that that God is in there sustaining everything, but sustaining everything with the nature of what is created. Huh? So God sustains creation as an ongoing kind of process. So one of the other concepts we developed was that creation is, is not just an original creation. God isn't just up there at some point in the past creating. Creation is a continuous process. Huh? So there's continual creation. And the Holy Spirit especially bespeaks that continuous creation that God is sustaining everything as it moves along. But God is moving all of that consistent with what God's created. So the image that I put together at, at the end that really kind of captures all of that is that God starts off with, you know, matter, creation. Huh? It, it, it arises from God, and God sustains it. And then what God says to all of creation is, go create, right? And so creation is constantly moving forward, and it moves in all kinds of different ways, and it moves into dead ends, and it moves into, let's try this, and let's try that. And so it moves chaotically. It moves randomly, and it doesn't mean that God's not there and that God's not sustaining, but God's sustaining is consistent with what creation is all about. And then I, I ended up by saying it's kind of another variety of, uh, uh, of what we always try to describe when we're trying to handle free will, you know. We don't want God, you know, making us puppets, so free will is there. So we say God sustains us, and God moves us, and God takes care of the world, but consistent with free will. And God says, learn the consequences of your free choices. And God doesn't intervene uh, in the, the concept of free choices. So we end up by saying God moves us, but God moves us freely. Then I said, go figure. And then we have different traditions that deal with that. So Presbyterians like God moving us, <laughs> predestination. And Catholics keep saying you've got to do a whole lot of stuff, and so it's free will. Huh? But in fact, both of those things are really part of the picture that we don't just simply have freedom as if we're running the whole world and we control everything and, and, you know, and there's nothing more. There's a God behind all of it. So God moves us. Huh? But God moving us doesn't mean that now we're puppets. God moves us freely. So God moves us and you know, divine power and might and providence huh, is also consistent with free will. So somehow we never get all that figured out, and then everybody wants to insist on one side or the other. And in fact, even within our own traditions, Dominicans and Jesuits fought like that for centuries. Okay, you know, grace and freedom, grace and freedom. And Dominicans kept saying grace, and the Jesuits kept saying freedom, <laughs> and are still fighting it out. Okay, and that's because nobody's ever going to get it figured out. It's going to be all of those things, and we're always trying to figure out how you get them together with one another. But in the end, I think that can be backed up one step to say that that's also how creation works. So creation is a free process. Huh? If it's not free will, it's a free process. And divine providence is God behind all of that, sustaining it, encouraging it, supporting it, moving it forward huh, in that way, but not determining it. Right? So providence does not have to be seen as God doing things uh, in the sense of pulling the strings. And w certainly what I think in developing a whole spirituality begins to push us towards is that we don't want to picture that we do things sometimes or creation does things sometimes and then God says every once in a while, stop, 
Now I'm going to do something. That's not our picture of God. God is imminent. God's in everything. God sustains everything. But everything also runs from its own point of view. So from a scientific point of view, we always explain everything from natural causality, if you want, and we can even put in chaos and everything else. Huh? From a religious point of view, we say, yeah, but whatever is going on in all of that, there's a God that sustains it, is the ground of being, ultimately pushes it forward, and is ultimately calling it to something as an end product. Huh? So we give full meaning to it, but always God involved with it, respecting what's going on. So that, I think, basically was theology of the Holy Spirit, and, and we can take seriously that the wind blows where it will, right? And the, and the Spirit sustains us with the breath of life, huh, which is another image of the Spirit, but also in an ongoing, continuous creation that's always moving along. Have I made sense so far? Quick summary. Not as quick as I thought it was going to be, but anyway, that's the last, the last two weeks. Are there any questions on that? All right, so that's kind of descent with modification and how God's in all of it, right? But now, the other side is um, struggle for existence, right? <coughs> or what we call survival of the fittest. Well, this gets us to our problem all the time of what we call theodicy. But let me just... Um, um, uh, make uh, one one point that's interesting from Holmes Ralston, who is a, um, um, a a scientist, but also dealing a lot with kind of theological issues. And he says the dynamic of evolution makes necessary a struggle for existence. And uh, here's here's his way of um, uh, describing it. He says nature is random, it's contingent, it's blind, it's disastrous, it's wasteful, it's indifferent. It's selfish, it's cruel, it's clumsy, it's ugly, it's full of suffering, and ultimately, it's death. That's simply the reality of what's going on. Now, you could look at all of that, and you could say, pessimism, huh? But what we also want to recognize is that there's also the whole positive side to that. In other words, in biblical terms, unless a seed dies, you know, the grain doesn't grow. So death and all of these things that, that Ralston uh, described are necessary for all the positive and all the good that we see in human life. You can't have one without the other. <coughs> so our question is how to deal with that. In the biblical text, we don't have a whole lot of texts that deal with all of this because the biblical world, you know, it just saw an original creation. I, they had no idea about evolution and continuous creation. I think is always indirect and you've got to go hunting for it. But I think Paul described all of this in one text that we can get from Paul that I think is very important is in Romans 8 where Paul says all of creation groans for the new creation. So it's kind of moving forward. And, and Paul pictured it all as labor pain, which is what I said, kind of fitting for Mother's Day, labor pain. So all of creation is groaning. There's a suffering in the middle of all of that. Did you see the cartoon? It's uh, Baby Blue was the... Uh, no, it, it was Zitz was, was the, uh, uh, the cartoon where the, the son is asking his mother what was the most important day in your life. And uh, she says, well, it was the day you were born. And he says, well, tell me about it. So he says, well, you know, the water broke and, uh, and we couldn't find the car keys. I, I'm making some stuff up here. I couldn't remember what it was exactly. But anyway, couldn't find the car keys. And then uh, 
uh, we started in the car and the car didn't run and you know and, and you know she's describing all these horrendous circumstances and he says and then you came along and uh, and Zitz talks to his friend you know the other teenager and he says mothers have a strange sense of what's beautiful and, you know, and wonderful <laughs> but but in any case it, you, you can see that juxtaposition that really says we just have to deal with the suffering the evil ugliness and all of those things in a different way because somehow it's also compatible with, with all the good and all of the other positive things that we're seeing in terms of a creation that keeps moving forward and a God who's in all of that. So Paul says it's all of creation groaning, groaning with labor pains, and that's the only way you get there. Huh? And that's also in a chapter, in chapter 8 of Romans, that talks a lot about the Holy Spirit, huh? the Spirit that's there and the Spirit that is indwelling and the Spirit that brings us into God's very life so that we can see God eyeball to eyeball, huh? not as creatures, but as children, huh? so that we're at the same level of God because God has drawn us into God's very life. Huh? So all the dignity of that, but somehow groaning huh? and all the other things. And then the interesting thing there, whether Paul knew it or not, is that it works very nicely in our theory, and that is that all of creation is in that process. Huh? So all of creation is in that. So what we need to do is to start looking at that suffering yeah, and that problem, and Johnson has a you know a number of things that uh, she talks about that um, you know first of all try to firm up that that suffering is an important part of what's going on, and then she starts trying to uh, to figure out how we get into a creed with all of that, and um, she's going to go to God the Son uh, and all the question of Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, and then rose from the dead as a way of kind of addressing this issue. So here's a couple of things that she says about the, um, you know, pain. She says pain becomes part of a process, right? So it starts even with rocks and other things, but then it only gets worse as we get more sophisticated in human life. So human life begins to develop, and with human life come things like neurons, you know, Plants don't have neurons, but they've also got sensitivity to light and all other kinds of things. And then as you keep moving along to animals and then you move to humans, you start moving to neurons that are beginning to emerge, and they register. Huh? They register. And what they're registering are really the things that are trying to warn us of danger. So it's really good stuff. But unfortunately, as they keep warning you about danger, they're also creating pain. And so what happens is you've got, you've got good and bad in there. It's kind of hard to figure out how you're going to separate them. Huh? You, need, you need both those things huh, to come along. So the pain is really a positive uh, effect of trying to warn us about danger, but then, of course, it always you know, affects us negatively. But, you know, as, as Johnson says, both pleasure and pain move the organism to behavioral adjustment to the environment. So we need that, and if we don't have it, we don't keep moving forward. It's not going to be part of our struggle for existence to help us to exist huh? as we keep moving along. So that, that pain is, is part of it. Um, what happens is the pain gets more acute as we keep moving up in the, in the, um, the hierarchy of, of life and we move especially uh, to human life. Uh, it, it helps us um, uh, you know, to begin to uh, uh, to, to kind of grow and to be warned of danger. But what happens is as we move up to the highest levels, then we become more conscious of pain. So there's always a uh, big argument over whether or not even animals know pain the way we do uh, because we're not sure animals have a sense of time. You know, what really creates pain is not just the instant 
uh, shock, but as you move up, you know, in our, uh, you know, human experience, is that it's the endurance of all of it, and you're adding all the stuff together, and then you're kind of projecting that it's going to keep going, you know, as it goes along. So it's not just the immediate thing. They always say, you bend my pinky back, I'm good for a second. But, you know, if you do it for a long time, you know, I'm thinking about it, and they also are afraid of what's coming, and all of that is creating more stress and anxiety, and that's, that's what we call pain in the human sense of the, uh, of the term. So, um, uh, you know, it simply uh, increases uh, what's going on. But, in the end, what we need to recognize is that without death, Nothing happens, and in fact, in the whole evolutionary process, nothing happens. So, you know, uh, without explaining all of this, Johnson says, without death, you don't have wings, you don't have eyes, you don't have brain. In other words, all of these things are coming because, you know, certain things were warning us, and, and then we're developing in the descent with modification to begin to use the things that begin to help us to ward off those dangers, and in fact, all of those things began to, uh, to develop. So what we need to do is, is to try to reinterpret our whole concept of death. Certainly one of the things we want to do is not develop a, a, the, uh, a sense that if Adam and Eve had not sinned, we wouldn't die. I mean, we have to understand those texts in another way. Uh, we can't understand them as saying we were all going to be immortal, and then Adam and Eve fouled it up, and then we were all going to die. I think from day one, the whole process of creation, when we see us in the process of creation, we're all going to die. Uh, and that's all part of the process, and that's not a negative, that's also a positive. Uh, but death is, is part of the process. <clears throat> then Johnson goes on, and she's just talking about nature itself to help us get comfortable with you know, the, the interplay between uh, pain and, and new life and, and creation moving forward, but needing death as part of the process. And so th this is where she gets to all of these things, you know, where animals are eating other animals, you know. But, so she starts off by saying, you know, orcas like to play with sea lions, play with them a lot. Of, and then after they finish playing with them, they eat them. Uh, cougars, you know, go chasing after deer. You know, hawks prey on rodents. And she talks that fact that weaker prey simply don't reproduce. They don't survive. So the stronger ones continue to move. But then what she says, if you look at all those same instances, is that the orcas playing with sea lions enable the sea lions to develop more speed, to learn how to swim faster. Huh? The uh, cougar, you know, started to chase after deer. The deer got really fast. You know? So in other words, descent with modification was enabling, even in the middle of all of the struggle for existence, you know, some things to begin to do, uh, to do better. Uh, rodents got smarter, you know, to outwit the, uh, the hawks that were gonna, going to get them. And then the, the, the image that really is, is kind of, it, it almost it makes you feel sad, you know, when you kind of think about it as a human being. She gives the example of what's called the backup pelican. It's all part of nature. She says pelicans, as, as a general course, uh, uh, you know, give birth to two pelicans. But they only care about one of them. So they look to the stronger one. And what happens is, is they have the other pelican there as a backup in case the first one dies. But if the first one survives, they kick the other one out. So, you know, when we think about all of that, you know, this is all simply part of the cycle of nature, huh? that the backup pelican is there to make sure the species continues, but it's the weaker of them, and so in the struggle for existence, it's not going to survive when you can't have all the pelicans, uh, you know, uh, uh, surviving. And so it's, it's, it's a backup pelican that, that is being described. 
So, so then we ask ourselves, all right, so now what are we going to do with all of this stuff? And what do we do about it, you know, in terms of a creed? So one of the things that um, uh, Johnson suggests is that what we have to do is we have to start thinking about what we call theodicy in a new light. We have to start thinking about the problem of evil in a new light. So a lot of the problem of what we've, we've done, where we always describe the, uh, you know, the, uh, the problem of evil, is we always work on the human level. And we always try to find explanations on a human level for why there's evil in the world. And we always think about it in terms of moral evil. She said, what we have to do is start thinking about evil in terms of biological, you know, and physical evil, and then recognize that it may not be all evil, huh? but that what we have to do is kind of enlarge the categories. So she doesn't deny that, you know, we have to recognize that free will has its uh, influence, and that sometimes we do nasty things that we don't have to do. Huh? So all of that has to be paid attention to. But we have to put the, uh, the process, the whole process of evil, into a wider category so that it doesn't just become um, human beings. Now, in doing that, we might take some of the things that we use in terms of our explanation for suffering on a human level and begin to extend it out a little bit further, at least in some kind of analogous way, huh? not in exactly the same way, but what we need to do is kind of extend it out. So she says, uh, what do we do first when we think about evil? She says, well, we work very much on a rational level, and we always have this, this little dilemma, huh? that either God is, um, is, is all-powerful, well, we say God is all-powerful, God is good, and human beings are created good. So he says, so where does evil come in? And then we say, well, it must mean that God's not all-powerful, or it means that God's not good, or it means that we're really created evil. Huh? And I say, no, that's not going to work. So, so we've got a good God here. We've got an all-powerful. We have a good God creates us with meaning and destiny, and we're moving forward, so we can't talk about God making us intrinsically evil. So we said, where are we going to go with evil? So I said, what we do is we kind of try to fit between those statements, right? So in the end, I mean, what we're really saying is we have no idea how to explain this stuff, but what we're trying to do is to try to keep compatible all of those elements. Huh? We don't want to deny that God is all-powerful, or that God is good, or that God created us good with a good destiny. So what we try to do is squeeze in between. So then what we come up with are things like, well, we're good, but not all the time. And so what happens is God leaves us to the consequences of our choices. Huh? So if, if evil comes into the world, it's not God doing it. It's us bringing the consequences of our own choices. But not in such a way that we are flawed to self-destruction, but in a way that sometimes we make the wrong choices with free will and we're reaping the consequences. So we explain sin as the consequences of our free choices. And then, of course, we know, but that doesn't seem to explain everything. And in fact, even in all of that kind of, you know, uh, thinking, we never account for things, so, you know, why babies die, you know, or why there's a flood, or why there's a tsunami. Huh? So even already, when we're always developing things out of our human explanations for things, you know, sin uh, or uh, suffering as a consequence of sin never seemed adequate to explain the situation anyway, right? But that was one attempt to explaining it that always put it in between the three statements that we wanted to make sure we maintained. But sin is a consequence. When we got to some of those other areas, but we were still always dealing with our human experience. Uh, we didn't worry too much about animals eating animals and that kind of stuff. 
But when we got to um, other areas, you know, where human suffering came along, that wasn't the consequence of sin, then we came up with other things. And we said, well, God's testing us. So God's good, and God's all-powerful, but God's testing us. So it's kind of in between those statements again. And God wants to see where our values really are. And God wants to see, you know, where we really stand in terms of God. So even Job was a, a book like that. You know, where Job was tested, he was good, God was good, God's all-powerful, but God allowed these things to happen so that ultimately Job would show that he really loved God and that he wasn't a fair-weather friend. So suffering is somehow a test. That didn't seem quite always to answer everything, and that seems unsatisfactory, although sometimes, you know, we say, yeah, well, suffering is really helping me to see where my values really are. It's helping me find out who my real friends are. It's helping me to find out if I really care about other people, you know, so in other words, there's a whole lot of things that may be going on there where suffering actually does make sense that way, or, or at least we're making sense out of it. And then the third way that we kind of deal with all of this, if we don't simply throw up our hands and say it's a mystery, you know, it's consequence of sin, it's a test, or then what we say sometimes, it's educative. Huh? So we're learning something by all of this. So, you know, it's teaching us something, and it's helping us to be better people as we, uh, we kind of move along. I think the uh, prophets have that sometimes. Hosea says, you know, uh, you've been running off after false lovers. So God's going to let you be shamed in front of those first lovers. And then you'll find out who your real husband is. And you'll come back to God. So in other words, sometimes the pain and the suffering and all the other things that go on are educating us and pushing us in the right directions to kind of find God. Of course, in the middle of all of that, what we never explain are all the situations where people don't learn the lesson or where people don't pass the test, or where, you know, suffering is not a consequence of sin. So, in other words, our explanations are always inadequate, but in point of fact, that's the best we can do in trying to figure out we want to maintain three things, and somehow suffering has to fit in between all of those things. What we don't finally conclude, because we do have a strong sense of an experience of a God who permeates everything, and a God of love, what we don't say finally is, there's really a nasty God out there, life doesn't make any sense, and we're all doomed to failure. We're quite sure that's not the answer. In fact, I'm not sure that even after we draw those conclusions, we're going to be any happier. (laughs) It doesn't finally explain suffering anyway, even after you give the most uh, negative explanation of everything, all you come up with is only a worse situation of what life's all about, and then you don't have any hope at all. So I think we always kind of work out of those, uh, you know, those partial explanations to always hang on to a suffering that at least makes sense in terms of a God of love who is, who is out there, who really cares about us. But in any case, what, what um, uh, uh, you know, what Johnson says is that sometimes, uh, first of all, we're doing a theodicy that only worries about human beings, right? And it's not a theodicy that's really worrying about the whole rest of creation, And then what she says is sometimes when we try to give explanations to things, then what happens is we don't really, um, you know, take seriously the actual suffering that that people are in or that's going on in creation. So she says sometimes uh, it really uh, denies the terror of innocent people or it deprives them of a voice. You know, what I think of very often is that people, you know, in all this wrestling all the time, will sit down and try to explain the Holocaust, you know. And, and Jews will tell you, don't give me an explanation for the Holocaust. This was just plain terror, you know. And there isn't any explanation for the, for the, uh, uh, for the Holocaust. 
Now, some of the Jews have gone in the direction of saying, and therefore, I don't believe there's a God anymore, you know, and it's always, you know, it, God inflicts all of this. But others come along and others say, you're not going to use the Holocaust to destroy my God. Huh? But I'm not going to explain how all of this happens. Huh? All I know is that somehow this God is still good and God does not abandon God's people, even with the Holocaust. But they kind of hold that tension there. But, you know, what Johnson is making as a point here is that trying to come to explanations for suffering trivialize suffering and doesn't take it seriously enough and especially doesn't help the people who are in the midst of suffering. It's also where we always, we, we always say when you're trying to consult people, don't give them nice platitudes about why a relative died or why they just lost a loved one because it's not an adequate explanation. Okay? Well, it's for the best or they're in a better place or you know, things like that are, are just trivializing the suffering that they're going through. So Johnson says even our attempts at, at theodicy are, are really, you know, meager, meager attempts to try to explain the thing, but the problem is that they also just keep us on the human level. So she says we want to go more. We have to go more deeply into all of this, and we have to see it as part of the whole cycle of nature and then figure out what we're going to do with it. So uh, she wants to move away from false starts, and she wants to move to what can do it better. Well... She says, um, what we need to do is to maybe take some of the things that we've done in terms of theodicy, but then kind of move past that. In other words, some of the problem, again, is if you keep trying to explain evil, even when you get to the level of creation, you're trivializing it. You know, so it's the same problem as on the human level. But maybe we can take some of the things and transfer them. Huh? So sometimes, I, I think... We could take, for instance, the aspect of, uh, of test or education and say, this is nature feeling its way along, right? So that, in fact, nature tries a whole lot of things. And that's where Ralston said, you know, that uh, in, in creation itself, it, you know, things are wasteful, uh, they're clumsy, they're ugly, and they're full of suffering is really saying that nature is trying a whole lot of things and that somehow, you know, God underpins all of that but in a whole kind of process in which it's trial and error. And so maybe what we said about human beings, you know, that suffering maybe can educate us or it can test us to see where our values are, maybe that can be applied to creation so that it's a kind of a wider context. But now we're dealing with, you know, the, the, the spare pelican or we're dealing with the whale who's gobbling up you know, the, uh, uh, the sea lion and things of that sort. You know, is there a test in all of this? Uh, you know, is, is it nature trying to find itself? Is it helping the deer to do better? Is it helping the sea lion to do better? So maybe, maybe in some ways that uh, helps us to try to get some handle on still keeping the basic concepts. And that is that God's all-powerful, God's good, and creation has meaning and is good, moving in a direction. Huh? It's not all built for chaos. Right? There's something more beyond all of that. But in the middle of all of that, suffering as part of the ingredient. So, so Johnson can kind of you can kind of transfer some of those things to a, a wider level, even the biological as well as the you know the rational and the and the human. But what she says in the end is that maybe the best way of dealing with suffering is ultimately to kind of face it head on, and to face it head on not with a way of explaining it. In other words, we simply cannot explain it. Huh? Although we can make sense out of it somehow as a creation trying to discover how to move along. Huh? 
Huh? Or as Darwin explains it, huh? that you know, it, in the struggle for existence, you know, the descent with modification is going to help, and that brings a death as well as a life. But what what Johnson suggests, and what I think is is a very helpful kind of uh, you know approach to all of this, is to say that in the end, what we need to what we need to stake our claim on is that whatever's going on in terms of all of that, including the death, including the struggle for existence, whatever's going on in the middle of all of that, there's a God who accompanies us. There's a God who accompanies us. So not a God who pulls the strings, not a God who you know predetermines things. It's all in the middle of chaos and everything else, and with that chaos comes suffering and death and all of the things that we just described, but that there's a God who is a God of compassion, a God who cares about all of that, and a God who accompanies in all of that. And so that's when she begins to turn to Christ, when she goes to the creed. So Spirit is already telling us that God is accompanying, but now what she begins to develop is that God accompanying us is accompanying us in death. That God is accompanying us in the midst of the suffering. God is accompanying us in the midst of all of the chaotic, ugly things that go on in life. And in fact, God is accompanying all of creation, including rocks, deer, sea lions, and anybody else. Even the second backup pelican. So God accompanying and sustaining is the important thing, and that there's a love, a God of love, kind of embraces all of that. And so she develops the the concept of the... uh, uh, of the creed that develops the concept of incarnation and then I think we could also add the concept of resurrection. So what's going on in the incarnation? Huh? The incarnation is telling us that Christ, huh, God himself, takes on our not only our human existence but God takes on our created reality. So Christ becomes neurons, protons. Christ becomes all of those things that are part of human creation. And Christ knows pain and suffering. So we get our, our, at least into kind of a situation or a place where we, we can say, you know, or we, we, don't, we don't say, God doesn't know my suffering. Or God is this transcendent being up there who doesn't know my plight. Huh? Because God took on our existence, took on created reality, and shares it with us in some way. So it's God accompanying. It should at least give us a sense of hope, it should give us a sense of intimacy. It should give us a sense of a God of compassion. Pope Francis likes to talk a lot about mercy. And I think mercy can be extended out, not only in terms of compassion and care for human beings, but it's compassion and care for all of creation. And so in the midst of all of creation, compassion. Huh? That's there. And this is a God of compassion who reaches out for all of us. And then there's going to be more. But I think there's at least that, huh, that God cares about us. And then God is calling us on in the midst of death and chaos and everything else, calling us on to that new creation, huh, which is at the end of the whole process. We have to wait for God the Father to get to that. But what God shows us in the, in the ongoing process of continuous creation is a kind of presence that's not just expressed by the Spirit, but a kind of presence that is expressed by an incarnate Christ who takes on flesh and takes on created reality. And then the other aspect of what I think is important and I think is, is encouraging for us is that Christ enables us to embrace suffering the way he did. So Christ embraces suffering in his own life in the cross huh, with a sense of trust 
with a sense of, uh, of openness to a God that he is still convinced is a God of compassion, a God of love, and a God who is calling him forward to new things huh? in the midst of the suffering. So what I like to say is that Christ did not know why he had to go to the cross any more than we know. Right? Christ is in the middle of huge choices and decisions. He's facing suffering in his own life, and he could have simply said, no God, or God doesn't care about me. Or, you know, or I don't need to do all this preaching about God, you know, just go back and raise some kids, you know. But instead, he continues forward with a supreme act of trust. So he embraces suffering and he goes through in an act of trust into that new life that God holds out for all of us, that there is something beyond all of this. Huh? But God accompanies us in the midst of mystery and, and suffering. So we don't explain suffering. Christ doesn't explain suffering. We don't know why the cross is part of the process. But what we do know is that it is expressing for us from a positive side God accompanying us in the midst of it all. So God knows what our suffering is like because God has experienced it in the, in the death of Christ. So the cross in that regard. Now I think what's important is that there's more than just the cross. Christ gets raised from the dead. And when Christ gets raised from the dead... He becomes a presence again in our lives. And in being a presence in our life helps us to carry the cross the way he carried it. Huh? Helps us to go through suffering the way he did because we share his life. So the cross becomes a supreme symbol, if you want, of God accompanying us. And then the resurrection of Christ becomes a way in which God continues to accompany us because he gives us the presence of Christ. <clears throat> and of course, when you talk about the presence of, of the risen Christ you're back to the theology of the Spirit. Huh? How is the risen Christ present in us? He gives us his Spirit. And that Spirit gives us the indwelling presence of Christ who accompanies us and enables us to go through the cross as he went through the cross. So in the end, I don't finally have an answer to why they're suffering. In the end, I don't think anybody has an answer to why they're suffering. But I think we hold still that God's all-powerful, God's good, and that God has created a good creation. But in the middle of all of that is death. We've got some insight that death also has a positive side to it. And then, when we can't explain the rest of it, and we don't have any way of finally explaining the rest of it, what we can say is that God accompanies us in the midst of all of that as we keep trying to create ourselves. And as creation tries to create itself, God is with us, accompanying us, supporting us, sustaining us, giving us hope, and telling us that it's heading towards something. So, the presence of the Spirit as providence guiding us, but always one step removed from pulling the strings, and then a Christ who is suffering in the middle of all of that, accompanying us in the midst of all of that as we go through it and as we keep trying to find our way to a better creation. So I hope that's some help. Um, Pope Francis alludes to all of that very quickly. He talks about the Spirit permeating all of creation, and then he talks about deep incarnation. Deep incarnation is getting right down into neutrons and protons and rocks and plants and everything else. That's Christ. And then he talks about the presence and the empowering presence of the risen Christ huh? as the, the theology that kind of underpins the theology of creation. So what we need to do is to see that presence of Christ in all of creation and not see the presence of Christ as just in us. See the Spirit as over all of creation and see, see Christ in his suffering accompanying all of creation and not just us. So that we take the odyssey out of our narrow framework of just trying to figure out human suffering and try to figure out how we're going to deal with it in the wider sense of creation 
uh, at large and how God is involved with all of that and how God's compatible with a creation in which death is a part of life. So, yeah, go ahead. How is the second Pelican different from Well, how is the, the second pelican different from predestination? Well, I mean, I understand predestination is more as God coming down and doing everything. Uh, you know, if you just take predestination. If you see that predestination is also compatible with what's going on in a free creation that is creating itself, then I'd say that uh, part of what's going on there is that creation itself is making its attempts at the struggle for existence. And that sometimes it reached dead ends and sometimes it's got suffering. And, uh, but and the Pelican had no, no choice. No, but the, the parents did, or choices. I mean, it's, it's instinct. Huh? But, but I, I mean, there were all different places in which creation itself is involved in all of that. And... Uh, uh, and the pelican is, is feeling the effects of all of that. My guess is that the pelican itself will be struggling for existence, but you know it, it's part of the the negative aspect of life in that sometimes we don't have the wherewithal, and death overcomes us. Everybody experiences that, so the pelican's in that situation. So you know, in the free process of creation, that that little second pelican is certainly not just giving up the ghost, but in the way in which creation is put together, it's not going to make it. But I think what I what I always want to do is keep predestination, you know, which is God's side of the picture, what we're talking about here, providence and all the other things, keep that consistent also with the free process of creation or free will or the other side. Uh, and then and then, you know, in trying to figure that, you're you're always dealing with a mystery, right? And so I say, think of Dominicans and Jesuits, or <laughs> you know. So we're always we're always trying to deal with that with that mystery. But then, you know, what what I think is beyond that in all of this is is a more positive picture of God, who in the middle of all of this is also accompanying us. So you know, part of providence and, and part of predestination and all of that is not God necessarily up there pulling all the strings and determining things, but God in the process with us going through it all. You know, but is with us, accompanying us, and strengthening us, and supporting us, and giving us courage. You know, and all of that, or doing that in in equivalent ways with creation itself. It's going to. So he's even with the second pelican. You know. Yeah, and in the end, in the end, what Johnson says is that even the second pelican is embraced by God's love. It, it's what's empty is when you try to give an explanation for what's going on. You know, is there not a comfort in a sense that God is with the suicide victim? I've not explained why they're suicide and not, not, not even explained how God's involved in all of that, but God's with the suicide victim. Well, for me, is a very strong... Yeah, there may not there may not be comfort in all of this. We don't have comfort in everything, which is why I say don't give trite explanations to people, you know, for what's going on. But there there's um, there's a sense of hope, and there's a sense of meaning that I think is going on here, and that 
that strong statement that Christ has gone through the most pitiable of circumstances and knows what everybody is going through or what every rock is going through, that that is part of, of a positive side of God working in our lives. So there's a hope in all of that and compassion in that sense. But that doesn't always come out to making us feel good. <laughs> but I think, see, I think that that's where you're one step past what science can do. Science, science is simply explaining what's going on, and then science says it's just random, and you die. Okay, and then we say, well, now what's next? You know, or is there a deeper dimension to all of that? And I don't think science can bring that. That's all science can tell me is the second pelican or, you know, all the rest of the stuff. If I want to bring explanation or I want to have hope or I want to have a sense of goodness, these are all things that science doesn't deal with. Science doesn't define good or truth or beauty. Those are all the things that, that ultimately we keep bringing to it. And I think one of the things that we're bringing to all of those things is this sense of hope, trust, compassion, you know, and that there is something that's underpinning all of this, even in chaos. Let's moving it forward. Yeah. I, well, uh, Go ahead. I was thinking, um, I live in senior housing as you do, and we could easily overload the prayer chain with concerns. Mm -hmm. Yet I do not believe there's any less joy in senior housing than any other place I live in. I, it's something you can't explain to other people. Mm -hmm. And the same thing when you go to Kenya. Uh, there's no, you know, their list is a little longer than ours. Uh, but there's no less joy there, and it's the same. I see that as some of the same type of thing you're talking about. That there's suffering, but that doesn't mean there's no joy uh, and and comfort through God's presence. Yeah, well, I, I mean, certainly that's always been our you know experience with kind of a spirituality is that joy is not the same thing as despair, or or I mean uh, suffering is not the same thing as yeah. despair. That there can be joy and suffering. Pope Francis is always saying, you know. I want to build up a church of the poor, for the poor. You know, said, so I want to learn from the poor. And he said, look at how those poor care for each other. And, you know, he's drawing out all the positive things. Now, he's not naive, and he's not stupid to know, you know, you want to get people out of poverty, you know. But he's also finding that, that, other, that other side, you know, that, that also has to be looked at. And the, the poor care for each other, and they care about each other. And, and it's always kind of a strange phenomenon. People are starving to death, and then they offer you their food, yeah. you know. So, I, you know, what, what's doing all of that? This is not just struggle for existence, you know. There's a sense of something else that's a deeper dimension there that, that is impelling people. And we may describe that in a Christian way, but people may have other kinds of religious values, or they may have other philosophies, you know, that underpin it. But there's something else that's explaining all of that and, and gives you this paradoxical thing that somehow there's joy in suffering, which, you know, from just simply you know, a uh, scientific point of view doesn't make any sense at all. Joy and suffering is just suffering, you know, and it's over. And then we get on to something else. What is God getting out of all of this? Why should he be involved in all of this chaos? Why did you get involved in all this? Well, I think theology is always trying to keep up to date. And if you want to keep up to date with anything these days, you better pay attention to science, you know, which, which is where the, the you know, the, the debates are right now. So, I, you know, I, I describe all of that as saying theology has to read the science of the times. And one of the science of the times is the scientific world, you know. And so we have to address 
you know, faith has to develop, the meaning of God and all of that has to make sense in terms of science. So she's one of, you know, leading Catholic theologians um, who is trying to address that and, and therefore, you know, first of all, read Darwin and tried to get a good handle on what he was actually saying and then tried to bring the creed in conjunction with that. Otherwise, you end up professing a faith that just gets to be more and more outdated. You kind of bracket the whole scientific world or you bracket modern society and you develop a concept of God or religion that's someplace else, you know. So what we're trying to say all the time is, what's God saying about all this stuff? And that's why she's developing that. <clears throat> the point you were making was that God is in everything that's going on. Why? Why does he want to be there? <laughs> well, <laughs> why, why does God want to be there? Um, <laughs> because that's the nature of God. Because God is love, and it, it's really, I mean... The question really should start from the other side. I mean, there's not an abstract God up there that somehow got revealed to us. We're starting on our side, and we're saying, why am I here? What's going on? What's going on? And then we're gradually coming to a sense that there's something out there. And then you say, well, what's that something out there? It's a God of love. And then if you want your answer at that point, why does God care about all of this? It's because I've gone through all this stuff to recognize there's a God of love who cares about me, and who wants to, you know, accompany me to be happy with him. So, in the end, I, th I think it, it's our own experiences that are moving us to that sense of God that's then coming back on us. Otherwise, where do you get this concept of God? Do we have some kind of, uh, you know, a priori, predetermined kind of concept of God? And then we say, well, now, why does that God care about me here? I, I think it's going the other way around and then bouncing back to us. Am I making sense? You can't start with God. You, we start with us. And then we try to figure out what this God is all about. Otherwise, God is simply invented. I've got to sit down and invent a God and then figure out whether he cares about me or not. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, when you were talking about God, just like now, permeating everything and starting, you have to start from here and then try to find God. Um, I always found helpful this book uh, you read in college uh, uh, by Martin Buber. I Thou? I and Thou. Yeah. Where, can do, and where he, there was a part where he said he found God in between his relationship between him and a tree or between him and a cat, his cat. Mm -hmm. Not all the time, but just a flash. There yeah, be a yeah. Connection. Yeah. And, and that was kind of that was the connection that yeah. revealed to him there was yeah. something greater. Yeah, there there, those are helpful concepts. Did you hear saying that? Uh, could you hear him? He was saying that he, he's always found helpful Martin Buber's book, I Thou, to try to explain the sense of presence of God and, and how God you know, permeates everything around us. Buber's idea of I Thou is that uh, uh, when you have an I Thou relationship, you kind of know things... Uh, uh, you know, with kind of an intimacy where you become part of what you know and what you know becomes part of you, he kind of contrasts it to an I-it. An I-it relationship is when you have facts and data about things. So I know trees, or I know chairs, or I know people, you know, and you have generic definitions and, uh, you know, it's intellectual knowledge. 
But when it's I thou, you don't just know trees, you know this tree. Or I know this chair. Or I know this person. So you become part of the person, person becomes part of you, and there's a more sense of presence and exchange and intimacy. And that, in fact, that's how we come to know God, finally, because it's that inner experience, and it's always an I-thou relationship with God. So that, that, it's back to what we were talking about. We don't know God as an I-it. I have a lot of facts about a God, you know, and it's God out there. I have a lot of facts about that God. It's an I-thou relationship that we're constantly probing and trying to develop. And that's always changing because we're changing and because we're moving on in time. Uh, you seem to be starting with the assumption that God is love. Uh, if you start there, all sorts of happy yeah, projections yeah. are possible. Well, all I can, I'm, I'm starting with a God of love, and all I can say is um, this is all being offered as the long Christian tradition. And you've got to decide whether you think that's accurate. Um, I, I can't prove that to you. Uh, in fact, I can't even prove the existence of God, let alone what kind of God. And you certainly have different kinds of religions that come up with different ways of doing it. But, you know, this, this is coming out of long traditions of people who started be, way before us, you know, pass it on, and then we keep testing it. Is it making sense? And, uh, and I, think, I think that's why we work with those assumptions. But you, you have to start someplace. Uh, when I think about uh, you know, science and what we know now about the universe, it's incomprehensible vastness. Things. In, it's incomprehensible vastness. Well, that's yeah, yeah. certainly part and of it. The world's incomprehensible. <laughs> the universe. Yeah, yeah. The hugeness. We can't even we can't even imagine yeah, the yeah. size. Of it. Yeah. And then if you think of a place as small as Earth, as if this is a river and you have an eddy that's going backwards. Oh yeah. And to some extent, is there one way to think about God as uh, an emergence of consciousness beyond rocks and inanimate objects where life begins? And you, it's really an effort by God to become conscious and have that consciousness be part of sentient beings mm -hmm. who then can under, get better understand uh, that the, uh, well, it could be the God is love idea, but how, how can you understand that if you're, if you're a rock? But you may be able to understand that as a person. And maybe yeah, I, I don't think... You know, an emerging consciousness where, you, where yeah, God's yeah. effort to see the universe, yeah. see his creation, yeah. and share it with multiple people. And yeah, I, I think... Well, I would start by saying everything is an image of God. But, but some things are images in very, very primitive and simple ways. And then as we keep moving along... Uh, you know, and we come, you know, I say everything has consciousness in a minimal sense. Rocks are in contact with dirt, you know, stuff like that. But then we come to a sense of self-consciousness. Right. And when we come to self-consciousness, then we become, you know, more explicitly aware of what's going on. And we also see more how we're in God's image. And then um, uh, all of that is where religion enters in and meaning and all the other things is when you get to uh, to that level. But you know, there's a certain amount of humility, as you kind of indicated in the beginning. We're doing all of this as little smidgens, you know, on a smidgen little planet in a smidgen little solar system in a smidgen little galaxy that's talking about billions and billions of billions of things in the universe that, for all we know, is in billions and billions of universes. <laughs> Give you a little humility about what your religion's telling you? Okay, and what we're doing, you know, and, and where we're going to end up, you know. So, so it's all of that, that that I think is going on. 
And so, you know, God may be trying to become aware or have others share his awareness through his creation. And that's part of, you know. Sure. Well, I, I, I think my picture is that God, God started all this stuff, whatever it is. He's holding it in existence and is having it reflect everything that he is and is drawing it all back into himself. And it's ten of, and I hate to cut it off. But I okay. <laughs> what a way to end.